0: So, for this uh, episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Racing Post journalist Lee Mosshead. Thanks for coming on, Lee.
1: An absolute pleasure, Chris.
0: Nice. So, um, where did it all begin for you, uh, Lee? When did you start at the Racing Post and how did you get into racing?
1: So, many, many, many years ago, I'm afraid, um, Chris. Uh, so, I um, only by that mean I'm old. <laughs> so I joined the Racing Post in September 1996. I graduated from York University uh, the previous, what, June, July, whenever, you, you know, you, you graduated and three years there, um, picked York partly because it meant I had close access to York Race Schools, Wedderby Race Schools, Pontefract, all those places, um, you know, i would grown up watching racing on TV, been a massive fan of racing on TV, and knew I wanted to work in horse racing. But after I graduated, I fired off tons of letters um, to different people in racing, because I knew. I knew I wanted to work in racing, but I didn't know what I wanted to do necessarily in racing. Um, I was six foot um, and had never really ridden a horse apart from five riding lessons. I think it was at uni, um, which I had to stop because I've got allergies. and that spent most of the time sneezing. So I was never going to be a jockey. Um, I was never going to be a, a horse when such because of the allergies. Wrote lots of letters, didn't really get any headway. Um, I'd pretty much given up hope. I applied for an estate agent's job in Preston, Lancashire and didn't get that, which is fortunate because i was been a rubbish estate agent. Um, and there just happened to be a job at the rating post for a classified sales manager. Um, and I thought in per penny, in per pound, apply for it, although I would no sales experience whatsoever. Not surprising, I didn't get it because I would no sales experience whatsoever. But it was an internal appointment for that role, which meant the junior position within the advertising department came up. Um, and very lucky, I got that, and I sort of moved south from uh, Blackburn, Lancashire, to at that point uh, we were based in Range Park, the Racing Post near Wimbledon. Uh, mm-hmm. So I moved down there in September '96. So when we get to September this year, I'll be starting my 25th year there, which really does age me horribly.
0: God, blimey, that's a long time. Um, yeah. Yeah, but how did, it, how did you get the opportunity to start writing for the Racing Post? Because you said you, you um, got your break there and got you, your foot in the door, but how did it evolve to start getting to be able to write for them?
1: Well, really enthusiasm, I suppose, Chris. So I, I joined um, in the advertising department under a, uh, a fantastic manager called Sarah Sands, um, who's still with the Racing Post um, now in the, in the Irish team. Um, and so, my job at that time was very much to sort of almost put together um, the advertising plan for each day's edition. So, on, on graph paper, cause I, who remembers graph paper these days? I'd actually put in pencil um, plans for the adverts, where they're going to go, you know, the 36 by for so the bookmakers, all those you see on the race cards. And I'd take them down to the editor, who was an Alan Byrne, and he would say yes or no, according to, the, to whether he liked the plan or not. And then, people, bookmakers generally in those days, would fax. Um, they're advertising copy to us, which copy takers would actually then make up into advertisements, which we would then check all the copies. So, you know, you'd, you'd read the the football odds for a Saturday two in the office. You know, you'd have one person say Newcastle 7-4, four, Arsenal 4-6, four to six, and you'd check that was correct for the copy. So that, was my, that was my job. But after we moved to Canary Wharf, which was in 1998, June 1998, after Sheikh Mohammed, um, sold the title for a pound, and the the two titles, Sporting Life and Racing Post, merged. I we moved to, to Canary Wharf. My role evolved slightly; I became more involved in bloodstock advertising with, with the studs and the sales houses. Um, and I began to just do basically do a bit of freelance work for Racing Post. So um, I put my hand up. I asked if there were you know, opportunities to do bits and pieces of, of writing work at the Racing Post. So I knew I wanted to have a go at it, but obviously. Um, that wasn't that wasn't what I was paid to do so um, a really good guy called Nick Godfrey um, who a lot of your listeners will know is a huge expert on international racing you often see him on Sky Sports Racing doing their coverage and um, tremendous tremendous journalist he was the news editor at the time the guy responsible for managing the flow of, of news copy within the newspaper and he very kindly um said uh, i could go and do the the race course reporting shift from worcester on um the saturday um of the St ledger day i can't remember what what year it was in it probably the, the early noughties um so i went off to worcester by train i did a shift at worcester doing the sort an up and down to be like, so we'd, we you know you do a, a 400 500 word report in those days we wrote the analysis after every race as well um, but in those days, one of the blessings of doing on a Saturday was there was no there was no Sunday edition uh, at that stage, uh, from what I remember. So we had until Monday for it to go in the in the paper, had a bit of time to finesse it. Um, but I really enjoyed doing that. One burning memory was how far it was from the press room at Worcester hmm. to the winners' enclosure. Um, it was good sort of two-footer walk it seemed, up and down every time. But I really enjoyed doing that. It seemed to go pretty well. Um, I remember my first sort of actually pull-out report, a um, big race like was the Victor Chandler Chase, which in those days a limited handicap, um, doing it. I was called Function Dream, might have won the race. It was a, it was a northern train, two-mile, I know, won, won the race that day. Um, and I just basically got given more and more freelance work, um, end up at that point running editorially um, the, the website in its infancy um when it was very much a different beast to what it is now and so really it was just a case of i was in there i was in the racing post um and it's easier, i think obviously to progress with in an organization once you're in it so once once you've got a foot in the door you can put your hand up and you can ask can i do different things and i did and they they were very kind they they um they allowed me to mature and develop as a as a writer and, and things sort of progressed from there really
0: and and when you were um you you were starting and you were getting to, to write more pieces were you ever nervous when you first started maybe about going to approach jockeys and trainers for quotes and things and and did you get a bit more uh you, you got used to the situation the more the more you did did writing basically
1: absolutely yeah you're completely right um but they were very clever um and sensible with me in the sense that and um, I, I was allowed to ease myself into the role of like. i say i started on a worcester a worcester jumps card on on a St ledger day and with the best will in the world there aren't that many people there wouldn't have been that many people interested in what happened at worcester that day mm. um so there's probably only a handful of eyes saw that report um and thereafter i remember probably for a couple of years Chris, i spent a lot of saturdays in the winter Doing um, Lingfields or weather fixtures, mm-hmm. so I'd, 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 I'd have an awful lot of Saturday to to afternoons when, when my job's good, and like be the race sports reporter there. And again, in those days, all-weather racing wouldn't have been as big as it is as it is now, um, and therefore you probably wouldn't have had that many eyes on you. But it meant that you you had a chance to to meet people, to start talking to people, um, and I think what you tend to find is that. As a as a young journalist, particularly doing racecourse work, it's it's easier to build relationships with people initially on the quieter days. Because if you if you're if you're working at Royal Ascot, for example, or the Cheltenham Festival, then the trainers and the jockeys and the owners they're obviously they're in a very intense environment, and months years of work have led to those days. And with the best one in the world, they probably don't want to um, have a have a chat with you and you know cut the breeze. But if it's a, if it's a Saturday at, at Lingfield or a Monday at Plumpton, you've got more opportunity to actually have a time to talk to people. Um, and generally people w- w- were really good. Um, but it is the case that the more you do it, the, more, the less nervous you get. Mm. And it follows that the more you do it, the more the people that you're talking to trust you um, and have confidence in talking to you. Um, Every journalist is going to have the occasional balls up and we've all done that. We've all written the wrong thing. We've made a mistake because just as jockeys write bad races, trains make bad decisions, journalists write bad pieces Um, and you have to get over that. Um, But I think by by having a a sort of softly, softly introduction, that, that really helped me.
0: And, and when did you start moving maybe away from race reporting and maybe doing features and columns and more doing in-depth interviews? When did you start to maybe branch into that side of journalism?
1: I suppose my role developed um, maybe the last six, seven, no, maybe seven or eight years or so. Um, I started doing more, say, more interviews, um, more features. I'm, I'm, I mean, again, again, I am immensely lucky, Chris. because Not only do I get paid to do my hobby, I get paid to work in horse racing. I I'd like to think I've almost got the, the the best writing job in in the racing post because I'm they, they let me do a bit of everything.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: I, I'm I'm race reporting at the Cheltenham Festival and the big meetings, but I'm getting to do features, I'm getting to interviews, columns, news pieces. I think the last maybe seven or eight years. I was very lucky. I um, did a, a big interview with Jamie Spencer. Um, again, probably eight, nine years ago, um, uh, when he was going through a difficult period in his, in his life. And he was very good in speaking to me. And he was very open and very honest. Um, and that had a, had a good reception. Um, and it probably led to me getting more pieces like that. Uh, but a lot of it, I think, in, in this business, as in any business, is down to luck. Um and I remember I only started doing you know, I do a column now pretty much every Monday when I'm on holiday. Um and that only started because we had a column with Haley Turner um on the same day, I think it was on a Monday. And we we started doing that and some things just don't work out. And that column didn't work out. I was doing I was doing one myself with Richard Hughes um at the time, which was going really well. And Haley's didn't quite work as well just because some people are well suited to doing columns some aren't and i think Haiti will be the first to make she didn't really enjoy it, it wasn't really working so we were left with a, a, a space to fill um and the editor at the time bruce bunnington um said to me john out doing a column so i started doing a column um and that just went from there um so, yeah, it, it, really just very lucky. So the more, the more you do things, the more people will hopefully like what you do. And I, I've just reached a stage, that, a bit of an old fogey, where I'm I'm allowed to do nice bits and pieces on different things, um, writing sort of heavyweight columns where you express a, an opinion and you try to set an agenda. You might not be right, but you, 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 you express your opinion. And, you know, at the other end, I can do sort of light, fluffy pieces, walking around on Derby Day, talking to... Um, people in the fortune tell us all. So, I, again, I'm incredibly lucky.
0: So, Lee, uh, as you've been at the Racing and Post for many years now and written many pieces, what are some of the ones that stand out for you during your time there?
1: I suppose there's a danger that by answering that question, you sound very conceited about, oh, well, this is a good piece. Um, I, I think in, in general terms, when you, for example, interview someone, the key is how quickly you want to transcribe the conversation. Um often the most boring part of the, 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 the job is 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 transcribing. You speak to someone for an hour, an hour and a half, two hours sometimes, and then you have to play the tape back, write up everything they said, because only by writing up everything that you know what you can use and what you can't well, what you want to use and what you don't want to use and what you've got space for and what you haven't got space for. When you've interviewed someone who is particularly fascinating really interesting and you think my goodness that's going to be a good piece you're desperate to transcribe it because you want to see those words on the computer screen so you can start constructing them into a into a piece of writing um that happened with the james the jamie spencer piece i spoke about it certainly happened when i interviewed gay waterhouse um in melbourne at flemington racecourse a few days before the 2013 Melbourne Cup. It was my first trip out there. I adore Australia and Australian racing. Um, And Gay had asked to see me at 4.45 a.m. at Flemington one day when she watched her horses working. Um, And she was utterly fascinating. Um, She's a huge figure over there. Unless you, you know Australia or Australian racing, it's hard to comprehend how big a deal Gay Waterhouse is. She's immeasurably more famous than any racehorse trainer in this part of the world um in in australia among her pe- among those people and she was great um and I, aside from the great race reports or great race, great races you get to report on things like you know, sprinter Sacre's champion chase is probably one that, that stands out for me and, and winks his final race in australia that they were joys to write about but when you, when you get to Write a piece that you think will have resonance and meaning and might actually help people. Um, they're the ones that give me the most satisfaction. I interviewed Kaylee Woolercott um, about uh, her, her husband Richard taking his life and what, what she'd taken from that and the, the, the messages that she wanted to get across about people speaking about their mental health. Um, very similarly, I spoke to Kevin Tobin this year who had been a jockey. Um, a british based jockey for a, for a long time, and he he wanted to speak about twice having attempts to take his life when he was riding because again he wanted to send out a message to people who might be in a similar situation in a similar position um, so I think where, 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 you, where you do a piece which you think has real depth and meaning to it and almost takes it out of the racing realm into the wider realm and which you think might potentially help some people, I think they're the ones that maybe give you the most satisfaction as a writer.
0: And probably one of the more um, toughest challenges maybe you've had during your time at The Racing Post, and probably in the last decade, there's been more of an emphasis on The Racing Post going digital. Have you had to change kind of the way you write from maybe writing a piece in the newspaper to writing something online or do you not re- is that not really an issue?
1: No, not not really the way I, I write, no. Again, because the pieces um the pieces that I write that they tend to they, they're the same really whether they're in the print edition, on the website, on the app, in the digital newspaper, they don't really change. I mean certainly some of the things that we do um are tempered to um the internet. There is there are certainly pieces that work on the internet that might not work um in the print edition. Um, but what I do as a writer hasn't really changed. If I go to Royal Ascot and I write an 800-word colour piece on what's happened there that day, that is a piece that will look the same if people are reading it in the following day's newspaper or on the evening of the, of the racing on, on the internet. I think what what has changed... Um, for me as a writer is that thanks to digital publishing, there is much more of an immediacy. Um, There used to be, and there still is to an extent that problem whereby if you're writing a a pure race report, you know, if you're writing the Derby report um, at Epsom, you know, the Derby's run at 4.30. If you're writing a 900 word, thousand word report, you try and have that done by 6.15, say. Now, before 6.15, we'll have had guys in the office producing interim reports. Um, so there's, there's content on there, you know, with immediate quotes, the immediate reaction. And then, but, so by 6.15, I'll have written um, a, a colourful race report that brings in the different themes of the race. Now, in the old days, that would not have been seen until people picked up over their breakfast the following morning. And in the very old days, it wouldn't have been until Monday morning. Um, so, and by that time, obviously, the race is long since gone. Everyone's seen the race. Everyone knows who won the race. And therefore, making the report relevant can be a bit harder. Thanks to the, to the digital age, that report is available for people to read so much earlier than it would have been the case before. Um, but I still think what we have done with the way we report races And the way we report racing as well is we try to be more colourful and analytical in what we do um, and more responsive so that we're not just telling people what they saw because, you know, if you've seen the derby, I've seen the derby, we know that Anthony Van Dyke went past the post in front. So telling people that these days, I think, isn't as relevant as trying to interpret what we've seen, analyse what we've seen, put some colour to what we've seen and therefore give people content that they actually want to read and will get some benefit from reading as opposed to simply telling them what they already know.
0: And and moving forward as a journalist, as we get more into this digital age, do you think that to keep your readership going, you've still got to produce stories people are going to want to read about? Because just a general impression that I get sometimes... I'd say maybe a lot of people would just want to go on the race and post just to see what your tipsters have written and just look at the race card and just get the information about the race rather than just read about someone's perception of it or read about stories. Do you still think that there's a place for it and the stories that you produce have to be ones that are going to grip an audience?
1: I think there will always be um, an audience and a market for good writing. I certainly hope so. Um, I think you're right in the sense that there will always be um, a section of our audience and perhaps a live section of our audience that really only wants to see the race cards, wants the data, if you like, that we produce. Um, But I think the job of people like myself uh, and the job of people who broadcast about horse racing on on television and radio is to try and broaden the 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 interest in the sport if be like, by making people want to read interesting features about jockeys and trainers, want to read interviews, want to read special reports into things, because I think there's the the there is a difficulty with horse racing and in, in that there are there are there are two different sorts of audience, and that reflects the fact that I think in some ways horse racing is a very singular sport in the sense that lots of people who go racing will have no interest in racing. That sounds a stupid thing to say, but there will be plenty of people who would go, go to a race course for a day at the races because they enjoy a day at the races, but they aren't really interested in, in horse racing. Now, there's nothing wrong in going to horse racing for the day at the race. It's fantastic that this is a sport that can attract such a wide audience, but the the percentage of people on a race course certainly big days often who are really interested in racing might not be as big as we would like to think and they're the people that i think we really have to try and drive content towards um to keep their interest going and um i would hope that there will always be those people there who want that um particularly because we recently moved home and we've got a whopping mortgage to pay off
0: yeah um and obviously for racing to continue in the journalism age, we're going to need new racing journalists coming through. What would be your main pieces of advice to younger journalists wanting to take up a career in the industry?
1: Um, I think in some ways it's harder now and in some ways it's easier now. It's it's harder now in the sense that there are so, there aren't the same number of outlets, traditional outlets, in which to write about horse racing, you know. When when I started, for example, there was the Sporting Life and there was the Racing Post. So you had two trade publications, two racing newspapers. Um, the number of people who write about horse racing in the traditional national newspapers has become greatly diminished. Um, you know, th- th- during my time in recent years, we, we lost Alan Lee from the Times. Um, and the Times since then has had much less writing about horse racing. There are some newspapers who have massively cut back on their racing desks and their investment in horse racing writing, which partly isn't reflective of horse racing. Partly is, but partly it's reflective of that football is god, and in those newspapers it's all about football generally. Um, so it's 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 perhaps harder to get jobs like the one I've got, where I write for a. A, a major publisher. But at the same time, there are so many now more avenues for people to show that they can write about horse racing. You know, when I started, you couldn't really have a, your own little racing blog in which you can, um, you can write about the sport. And there are lots of people doing that now. Um, and for those people, that provides an avenue to show how good you are. Um, and there's some fantastic writing by young racing writers now um, available for digital consumption. Um, and those, those writers not only have a chance to express their passion for the sport, but they also have a chance to potentially commercialize what they do and to potentially say to um, possible employers at the racing post and in other publications, look, I'm really good at this. I'm a I'm a very um, impressive writer. You know, why aren't you employing me? Now, there will always be only a certain number of, of jobs available. But there are at least so many more ways now that you can have a calling card for your journalism, for your writing. And that has to be a positive thing.
0: No, there's going to have, need to always be a wave coming through. And as you, you rightly said, as we've moved more into the digital age, there is more of the chance for younger journalists to express their opinion. But that's all we've got time for in this episode, Lee. I really appreciate it uh, for you giving up your time and coming on today. And uh, hopefully some of the younger journalists there would have learned a few lessons you've uh, given throughout this podcast.
1: It's absolute pleasure,
0: any time. Uh, thank you very much. For more podcasts, please subscribe to our SoundCloud page. You can also follow us on Twitter as well using our handle at InTheSaddlePod. And we're also as well now available to follow on Facebook and Instagram.